This is Media Business Matters, the podcast that explores why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. You've already heard what happened this week, but we'll take the next steps of explaining why it matters and why you should care. This isn't a place of pontificating and predictions, but of getting to the meat of what is going on in media today and the implications for the interconnected web of media businesses as well as consumers. Knowledgeable outsiders, Alex, a journalist, and Amanda, a professor at the University of Michigan, consider emerging changes without a stake in disruptions, able to acknowledge the transformative shifts experienced by media today. Hi, Amanda, and thank you all for listening. I'm Alex. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to talk about the business of media. There have been a few big stories this month, and a lot of the major ones have seemed to do with one streaming service in particular, and that's our friends at Netflix, um, who, have been per- who have been shaking up the media landscape since they started, you know, way back in the 90s with their DVD rental service. What's the news about Netflix this week? One of the big stories comes from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas which happened at the beginning of January. During a press conference at the Consumer Electronics Show, Netflix announced that they added 130 countries to their service simultaneously, which puts them in over 180 countries around the world. Now, if you look at a map of Netflix's website, there isn't much that isn't colored in red with having Netflix after this announcement. At the time, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings uh, said, Today you are witnessing the birth of a new global internet TV network. So, Amanda, in the world of global expansion, why did this announcement seem like a groundbreaker? Well, it's really important because Netflix is really at the center of revising the nature of international distribution. International distribution of television shows has existed for decades. It's it's an old process, but it was built very much on the analog era of media, and therefore media content moved very differently than it can move now. And so what's really exciting or scary about Netflix and their international expansion, depending on who you are, is its ability to move content really anywhere in the globe and make it available at the same time. Yeah, I mean, Netflix is really looking with its originals to put them out there in as many places as it can, um, as as it can. And it's not even just its originals. It's now looking for global rights on deals from content it acquires from other net, other places, other content distributors. Like, a report by Joe Flint in the Wall Street Journal this week said that it's already impacting their negotiations with the CW. The CW's deal with Netflix expired at the end of last year, and the, and the network is currently looking to replace that deal with something new. And Netflix um, was the home prior, and the CW shows have been big for Netflix, and Netflix has been huge for the CW by giving it money that actually made it profitable. Well, I think an important thing to think about there, too, is in, in this new era... Yes, we think of shows as being CW shows, but the CW is just the originally licensing stu- uh, network. There, there you have that first window. The actual content belongs to the studio that's making those yes. shows. and in this case, it's the co-owners of the network, uh, Warner Brothers and CBS, and apparently they're balking at a new deal with Netflix because Netflix wants the global rights, and Warner, uh, Warner Brothers especially in this report um, was noted as being afraid of selling these rights internationally because it would give Netflix too much leverage. If they, say, own all of the content and all of the global rights, it might lose their their leverage in selling it elsewhere 
to maybe other content providers around the world. Well, this is very much, this was in the, in the news this summer. A lot of the financial analysts have, have one of them even took out an, a, an ad and wrote an open letter to the media industries selling them or asking them to stop selling their content to Netflix because they are devaluing in their own content or their ability to make money off of their own content and they're making it possible for Netflix. So in this era when entities such as CBS All Access, which is a CBS-owned broadband distribution portal, has emerged, uh, I, my, my expectation is to see more and more of the studios holding back their own content and either creating or using their existing portals to take advantage of that content for themselves. But let's get back to Netflix. Yes. And so, and let's talk a little bit about what this distribution in other countries means, because I think it's important from thinking about the experience in the U.S., if you are traveling abroad, it doesn't mean that your Netflix experience is exactly the same as it is here. No, um, especially because um, Netflix deals are made individually by country. Now, Amanda, would you, could you tell us a little bit more about how these decisions are made and how these rights are sold to Netflix? Right. So a lot of this is Netflix growing up in the shadow of that traditional right sales business. And so the way that it had worked is if a studio owned a show, they would sell it in either each country or sometimes different regions would be represented by a single entity. And so initially Netflix was was following this model. And so when they licensed Breaking Bad, they paid one fee to license it uh, in, let's say, all of the Nordic region. Um, and, and so those were the initial deals that, that were struck. So as a result, what happens is that Netflix doesn't necessarily buy all the same content for all the same markets. So it's not one Netflix that is globally the same everywhere. Maybe the better way to think about it is that there is a Netflix channel now in 180 countries, and that Netflix channel has a range of content. It's likely to include Netflix original content. That's content that Netflix actually paid to create. Um, the way that those deals are structured, Netflix pretty much has the rights in perpetuity around the globe. Um, but other content, they might pick and choose. If they understand that certain kinds of comedies are popular in some regions of the world but not others, they might not buy the license for the regions of the world where that content isn't popular. So it's really important to understand that Netflix is not the same entity around the globe and the content is not the same everywhere. Even though that's what Reed Hastings is trying to sell with this big broad statement of it being a global network. It has the possibility to be a global network, and, and that, that's no small shakes, right? We, we've had nothing really like that before now, except to a degree some of the, the way that HBO has existed, uh, that there are different HBO channels in, in different parts of the world. However, those aren't all related exactly to the U.S. entity. In many cases, they were initially um, co-programmed together by and, and co-owned by a company in whatever country uh, that entity existed in. Uh, but So it, this is big, but it's perhaps not necessarily as big as, as some may think it is. Exactly. The global expansion of Netflix wasn't the only story for Netflix dominating the media market recently. Not at all. There was another big story this week that came out of the press tour. NBC Research put out what we could actually take as relative ratings for Netflix shows something they've refused to provide pretty much, like, ever. They haven't put out any ratings. And importantly, these, these still are not Netflix's own ratings. Rather, NBC contracted with a service called Symphony to 
estimate Netflix viewing in one market. So we'll talk in a minute about, you know, sort of why we might want to question these numbers. But I thought what was really interesting was that NBC presented these numbers as uh, some sort of the tell-all that, see, look, and uh, Netflix numbers aren't so great. And yet, if you actually look at the numbers, they're not that bad. Not at all. So just to give you a sense, the numbers for a number of Netflix series, Jessica Jones, 4.8 million, Masters of None, 3.9, Narcos, 3.2. So that's think about those as, as that many million viewers watched Netflix, those shows, in a month. And so that, just to give the comparison point, a big network, broadcast network show, let's say Empire, Empire's coming in at about 9.5 million. So much smaller than, let's say, the, the, or half the audience of, of, of Empire, but Empire is uncommon. And Walking Dead also comes in right around that 10 million point. Most cable dramas, however, that we see, you know, what's considered a successful cable drama often comes in at about 2 million. Especially with and even when you factor in DVR numbers, you're only going to get about two or three million viewers on these big cable dramas. Like True Detective, you're only got about two million viewers on those on this live plus same day level. So what we see is actually not surprising. There's There are a lot of reasons that we should doubt these numbers methodologically. But honestly, in my gut, these sound about right. Netflix shows are being watched by more people than are typically watching most of the cable dramas. They're watched by, well, somewhat comparable audience to broadcast. I think one of the, the challenging things here is pulling apart the issue of the measurement group. So this is the audience of 18 to 49-year-old viewers. And, and that's who the broadcast networks, that's most important to them, and that's the, who they sell to advertisers. I was looking at uh, Joe Adalian's numbers, and on average, the, the broadcast networks are averaging just around 1.2, 1.5 um, million viewers at any point in the month in that 18 to 49 range. So that, that those audiences for Jessica Jones and those Netflix shows are significantly bigger than that average. Although the thing to note about these Netflix numbers are they're over a, they're over a month's time. And Netflix also just doesn't care when you watch their shows. Right. So, so that's how we, we begin to get to this issue of apples and oranges, right? So economically... The broadcast networks and cable channels, other than HBO and Showtime, are working on a really different economic model than Netflix. Netflix is not concerned about how many people are watching. They're concerned with how many people are paying their subscription. And as a result, what they develop, what they find value from, whether or not it's a success, gets measured in very different ways. It's probably more comparable to an HBO, which uses the subscriber model. Um, HBO, they will often put out a number for, say, Game of Thrones. And that's the cumulative number. That's the number that HBO's looking at when trying to decide whether to renew or cancel a show. And Netflix is probably similar. They don't care whether you watch your show, you know, the, they don't care whether you binge watch Jessica Jones the weekend it comes out, or say you watch it over the holiday, or you just watch it over the course of six months, as long as you're pressing play on that episode. But I do think it's helpful to have some sense of these numbers. And, and my suspicion when we had some numbers from this service before, and my suspicion was that Netflix at least perhaps would respond if the numbers were way off, that, that Netflix, if, if this was a way low estimation, that Netflix probably wouldn't be able to stomach that and they'd need to come out and, and say that actually this many more people viewed. So I, my suspicion is that th these numbers are about right. And you know, why do we care? Why does this matter? 
Well, I think it's just helpful in terms of the way that the changing environment of television is talked about. And really what, Net, what NBC was trying to do in releasing these numbers was say, hey, everybody, you're paying so much attention to Netflix and all these streaming services and making these arguments about how they're killing our businesses. Now, the truth is they're existing as a competitor within the field. Uh, they aren't overwhelmingly taking up the space and taking away audiences, but there is movement in audiences and when they're viewing and how they're viewing. Oh, there absolutely is, Amanda. I mean, when you look at those Netflix numbers, they're, they're showing maybe a slight change, maybe in the same way that cable took audience away from broadcast, but it's not really the huge groundswell that maybe it was made out to be. And I think it's important to, to remember these things do shift over time. And, and, and really the big issue for the, the networks is, you know, those Nielsen ratings aren't really measuring who's watching those shows or how many people are watching the shows. Those ratings exist because they need to be able to report how many people see the commercials. And, and really the, the point that the ad-supported industry is struggling with is that it has this measure for measuring that audience that you could, in order to count in, in those ratings, it, the viewership needs to be done within three days, and they need to view the commercials as well as, as the content, or actually just the commercials, the content doesn't matter. Um, the networks and channels have really been pushing back and asking to extend that out to seven days, maybe 28 days, as now more and more viewers have video-on-demand platforms where, where they can maybe build up a few episodes and, and watch four or five at a time. And the thing about the video-on-demand platforms are the networks can actually block you skipping the commercials. If you press play on an episode on demand, they actually can say, no, you cannot fast forward over these commercials, which is why that platform is becoming especially valuable to these broadcasts to these broadcast and ad-supported networks. As long as the, the viewers stay, I'll tell you, there's, there's nothing I can't handle more than uh, a full commercial load on VOD with, with all those commercials in it and the fast-forwarding disabled. I mean, but it's important to understand that in many ways it's sort of two different businesses after those, those first three or seven days. The advertising that you find it on demand after that initial period, that's sold separately. Um, and so really what needs to happen is that the advertising community needs to, to rethink how it is that it measures and it values advertising as audiences become more accustomed to an ability to watch what they want and when they want. So that it's not really so much about that timeliness piece. And I think what, what NBC is able to show is that viewers are watching its content, viewers are watching cable content, viewers are watching Netflix content. The problem that, that the networks are really struggling with is that they're stuck with this economic model that really doesn't work for them anymore. Talking a little bit more about the methodology of these numbers, how certain are they? Not at all. And so it's important always, it's never in the headline and it's always in the fine print and half the time it's not even there. But these, Netflix, these numbers about Netflix viewership were gathered in just one market in San Francisco. So that's just in one place. Um, it had a, a, a decent sized sample. It was 15,000, but that 15,000 people, they had to opt into the sample. And so it, this is really methodologically very different than a Nielsen survey. And all that said, I, I think that there probably was some, some good statistical work that might have gone on behind the scenes in terms of figuring out, you know, valuing how, how many Netflix, matching the, number, the profile of your typical Netflix subscriber with those people who were opting in. And it, I don't think these numbers are way off, but I think it's very important to be clear that this is a long way from kind of the carefully measured and researched and evaluated kind of rating that a Nielsen number would be. Absolutely.
absolutely. Um, these numbers, they're, and I, they're a ballpark. They're not something we should use as fact. Right. Now, NBC put out these numbers at what we know as the Television Critics Association press tour, which happens twice a year. Now, Amanda, can you tell us a little bit more about the, the TCA tour and what, it, what it's come to represent? Sure. The TCA has a long history, and, and they, what it is is the journalists from around the country gather in Los Angeles. Uh, they stay in a hotel. Um, the winter tour is shorter. It's usually about seven to ten days. The summer tour can reach as long as three weeks. And they're sort of sequestered in this one location, and then each of the channels and networks and services have different days that they bring in panels of the creative staff and often some of the lead actors to present often new shows to the critics um, and allow them to hear about them all together and then in some cases ask and answer some questions afterward. And TCA developed, I mean, I think it's really important to think about the way that television has changed uh, over the decades. When, when television criticism first existed, critics had no way to receive the content before the rest of the audience. And so it was much like a, a theater review. Um, and, but the issue was that you couldn't then go see the play. Uh, the show had aired and it was over. And so criticism in that era was one thing. And then over time, critics were able to gain access to content before it aired. And so in that network environment when there were only three channels, I think critics were important in terms of they were, they were able to watch everything and really recommend certain things. And it's been a challenge for critics in, in more recent years as there is so much television available that it, it, it became decreasingly important to write bad reviews. You simply just didn't talk about the content that wasn't worth watching. And and we could argue that whether or not it's even possible for critics to review all that's out there today. No. I mean, as someone who has written criticism for the Michigan Daily for two and a half years, something that myself and my editors have really struggled with is finding those important shows and writing about them. Because there is so much out there, and at, we're, we're a student paper, we're a student body, we only have so much time and so much space in our paper to write about these shows. So something we really struggle with is actually trying to weed through and pick out, say, what's, what are the important shows that we need to be writing about and we need to be talking about. That's something we've absolutely struggled with. And that's something that all professional critics are struggling with. I see on Twitter all the time, these critics are talking about how much there is. And, you know, I, this summer when John Landgraf went to the TCA press tour and talked about Peak TV, the flow of articles that followed after talked about how how hard it is to review everything and how it's impossible to watch, even watch everything that's out there. Right. And I think this is, you know, it's, a, it's an important moment in looking at the way television is shifting. And, and certainly the critics feel they need to watch everything because that historically has been the nature of the practice. But I, I think the great point is there, there's not a book critic out there who is talking about peak books or anything like that because there have always been far more books than critics could review. And we're reaching that point in television as well. And so instead of, 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 of bemoaning all of this content, I think it's, it's, it's yet again a moment in which the nature of television criticism has to reinvent itself. And I think we see that in some ways going on um, as critics move away from the kind of publications that traditionally employed them. No, there have been a lot of critics who are moving to these online spaces. Like Alan Seppenwall, several years ago, moved from the Newark Star-Ledger, uh, my hometown Newark Star-Ledger, to hitfix.com. 
And you see all these critics going to these online spaces and get, and actually these online spaces being able to pay them yeah. for their work. That was very much the, the case when I was researching TCA a little over a decade ago. It was that moment of transition and sort of do we recognize or does TCA recognize the, the journalists from these non-traditional print locations? And, and, and certainly that, that has worked its way out and, and, and largely as a result of the struggles that the print industry experienced and in, in, as it has been affected by digital distribution, the same digital distribution that has led to this great quantity of television. Absolutely. And now when we're at TCA, you know, it used to be this, that was the only way that these critics would be able to get access to these actors. That used to be the only place where, say, someone, a Des Moines, Iowa reporter, you know, for the major paper there could go and they wouldn't usually be able to talk to the stars of the shows, the producers of the shows, these, the network executives who are all put out there to present. So TCA used to be the only way to do that. And now it's relatively easy to, for these people to, and these reporters to get access to these stars. I think one more thing about TCA that's, that's worth noting in comparison to the, the nature of critics in some other industries, TCA was originally formed as, as a collective organization by critics. And in order to go to TCA, you have to become a member of the Television Critics Association, and it's the critics who decide who gets to come. And this was very much in response to a, a, an environment of, of abuse, really, um, that is still continues to be much more common in the film industry and its use of, of junkets, where it's the, it's the film industry who decides what critics can be there. And so TCA originally developed to sort of move away from this environment where networks were just giving critics lots of cash or having these big and lavish parties in, in hopes that that would change the way that they'd write about their shows. And so what, hap- what can happen on the film junkets is that if, if a critic goes to uh, a, a, an event for a movie and then writes a bad review or um, violates the list of questions that they're told they can ask, that that critic finds themselves that they're not asked back. So by developing a collective that the critics run, the critics were able to sort of take that power from the television industry because they're the vetting agency and they decide which critics get to be in the room and... From the tour that I went to, I'll tell you, the executive session was amazing. It was it was much more like a press conference, uh, a political press conference than anything. And the journalists asked really hard questions of the executives for the networks and the channels because they can, because they don't have to fear repercussions uh, for asking those tough questions. Exactly, exactly. Like maybe someone who isn't associated with the tour, like Amanda said, could get blackballed. If they, just, if they ask a question, if they question whether an executive is failing at their job. And executives do tend to dance around these types of questions in their sessions, but it's become a very important part of being a television critic. Right, and I think one of the other things that we're now seeing is, is that the critics have sort of figured out this new balance, right? Because as social media emerged alongside press tour, uh, there was this challenge because so much of what critics would come across during tour, they would bank and, you know, like they'd hear about a show that's going to debut in, in a month or two. And so they'd learn all about it. They could write some things, but then they'd hold it. 
but incre- but there was also that desire to to get news out. And so I think this has been a pretty moderate press tour. There hasn't been a, a whole bunch of breaking news that has come out in the in the last week or so. Um, but I'm sure we'll continue to be seeing the 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 reports and and the journalism that they did as a result of it over the months to come. Oh, absolutely. Just another note: in the age of social media, there is no longer that weight for the information. Critics are tweeting constantly through all these panels and putting out the news as it happened, putting out the quotes associated with this show as they happen. And we're starting to... It used to be they would hold back the stories, but I don't really see that a huge amount anymore. I think this is what we're seeing, the shift in print in general, is the recognition between the difference between breaking news and good, investigative, thought-out journalism. So we haven't seen the trend pieces yet. And one of the things that happens when you have so much television presented in a short period of time is that it it connects together in certain ways. And so whether it's a theme of, it seemed like there was a lot of attention to multicultural casting that came out of the summer press tour because it was very noticeable in that context of having it all together. And I think that's what led to some of the great reports that a number of critics did that then they went and you know, dug up the numbers. They looked at historically how many um, you know, non-white actors have been in major series and things like that. And so that's not the kind of thing that's going to be part of a Twitter feed. Uh, but those pieces will develop later. And I really hope they do. I look forward to reading them all. So I would like to thank you all for listening to this initial show. Uh, Amanda, how can, how can our listeners find us online? Well, for more about your hosts, you can visit amandalotz.com, A-M-A-N-D-A-L-O-T-Z.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. TV Lots and Alex at... At Alex Intner. That's Alex I-N-T-N-E-R. You can find new episodes of the show at iTunes or download them directly from amandalotz.com. Thank you all for listening. See you next time.